0: All right, our children can head back uh, to be with our Transformation Station workers. And let me just say, uh, part of our philosophy at Redemption Hill, we want, we want our children to be in with us in our worship, so uh, many of our young kids still start out and worship with us so that uh, they can be exposed to what worshiping God looks like, so that they can hear these songs of the faith and learn and hear these scripture readings and see parents and other people older than them opening their Bible uh, to, to learn to worship God. So that's one reason why we don't just want to view children as a potential distraction, although sometimes they can be loud and run around and all of that. That's perfectly understandable. They're kids. Um, but, but that's why we love to have them here with us. So. Um, Now they're going back for a specific time of instruction and and uh, and and fun uh, there in Transformation Station. But I'd like to invite the rest of us to open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter twenty today, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided there in the rows, uh, that will be page eight hundred and seventy-nine of the Bibles we provided for you. Well, this past Monday we celebrated Memorial Day weekend. And every year we take time during this time of year to honor our veterans and celebrate the freedom that they serve to to deliver for us. And it's, it's great for us to honor our, our veterans and those who are serving in our armed forces because, truth be told, they're probably some of the most underappreciated men and women in our country. So we, uh, as, as those who benefit from their labors, owe a great debt of gratitude and honor to them for how they serve our country. And I read an article this week that I think captures the sentiment of how many of us feel about those who serve uh, in our armed forces. Uh, Listen to this. It was a story about a 95-year-old World War II Marine veteran named Holly Easter. Uh, Mr. Easter served in the Pacific, and he was injured when the side of his tank blew up, and um, he suffered some injuries there. But uh, it, it said that before he enlisted, he had a wife and three kids. And, and he said these five simple words about how he felt about enlisting in the, in, the, in the military. He said this to his wife, Honey, I need to go. Simple as that. Honey, I need to go. He was compelled to serve our country. But then he says now, almost 70 years later, uh, this. He says, I'm thankful to still be here, standing on my own two feet, There are a lot of men who did some pretty incredible things, but the real heroes are those who sacrificed everything. The real heroes are those who gave it all. I want us to think this morning about what it looks like to sacrifice everything. I want us to think about what it looks like to give everything Everything to a worthy cause. Now, most of us will probably not serve our country in the military and lay our lives on the line to protect our freedom, though, though some among us uh, may do that, and they should be honored for it. But as, even as we think about the, the great sacrifices that those fellow citizens make to protect our freedoms, the Bible tells us that we're called to an even greater cause. And the Bible tells us that that we are called to make equal to even greater sacrifices and giving everything in our lives to God. That's what I want us to think about this morning. In Luke chapter 20, we're going to see that Jesus continues to encounter these religious leaders who wanted to catch him in controversy. And so we're going to continue to see that here in our passage this morning, but we're also going to see Jesus go on the offensive and bring some theological discussion to the religious leaders in order to help them understand the truths of God. And so what I want us to walk away with is that these verses are going to call you to give your life to God by giving him everything. Give your life to God by giving him everything. I want to give you three ways today how we can give our lives to God. Number one, build your life upon the cornerstone of Christ. Now we saw in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 20 that Jesus was being interrogated by the religious leaders and they wanted to know what type of authority he carried to say the kind of things that he said and to do the kind of things that he did. And Jesus, of course, is wiser than these leaders and so he, he silences uh, their criticism once again. And now, in the clearest terms, he's going to tell what their rejection of him will actually lead to. So read with me, if you will, verses 9 through 18 of Luke 20. This is what Luke writes. He says, And he began to tell the people this parable. Jesus says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So what Jesus is doing here is he's calling the religious leaders to this picture of a vineyard. And they would have known that Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 are the backdrop for a picture that depicts Israel as the vineyard. And it tells of God's care for his people. And so, Jesus tells this parable, and, and each major character has a, a, a represents uh, a piece of Israel's story, okay? So, so the, the vineyard represents Israel, um, but the, um, the tenants represent the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be caring for God's people, but were uh, not fulfilling their responsibilities, Then we see that the servants, Jesus says, uh, represents God's prophets, the ones who were uh, called to go to Israel and and, and call them back to return to God. And every time the the prophets went to tell the message of of, of God to the people, they, they, they persecuted them, they mistreated them, they didn't heed their message most oftentimes. And so now we see that As Israel's history is unfolding, God not only sends his prophet to them to call them back to God, but he sends his very son. And it says that the tenants, these religious leaders, were going to continue to reject the purpose of God, and they were going to even reject God's son, even to the point of killing him. This is a picture of what we're about to see with Jesus going to sacrifice his life and die on the cross for our sin. And so you might imagine that as the religious leaders are hearing this story, they, 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 are, they, are, they can't believe their ears because they know that Jesus is calling them out. He's, he's calling them as those who are rejecting God and, and their judgment is, is, is sure to come. So they cry out, surely not, this can't be. And Jesus then quotes... I, uh, psalm 18, 118, verse 22. And he says, oh, you know this psalm so well. Surely you memorized it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus says, I am the stone that you are rejecting. But in fact, I am the cornerstone. Why does Jesus quote this verse? Well, Psalm 118 was a psalm that pointed to the Messiah. We saw this last week when Jesus rode in on the donkey in the triumphal entry. And the, the, the people shouted out the words of Psalm 118:26, 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they were expecting Messiah to come. And so Jesus says, hey, look, do you know the whole psalm there? Do you know what, it, what it's saying that that?" This stone that is rejected is actually God's cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is, is, is what l- the foundation piece that would hold up intersecting walls. It's the most pivotal stone in a building. And so w- without the proper foundation, we understand that a building would not stand. We should be thankful, as those who are on the fourth floor of Springstep this morning, that the architects and the builders laid a proper foundation for this building. Right? I don't know about you, but I love skyscrapers, man. I love to go into to big cities and see the skyline. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Hancock Tower in Boston or the soon-to-be-unveiled uh, One World Trade Center in New York City also known as the Freedom Tower that will be uh, open probably later this year or or the beginning of 2014. It doesn't matter how great the structure, if the foundation is not built properly, that building will not stand. And what Jesus wants us to understand this morning is that our very lives, if not built on the stone of Christ, will not stand. They will not be built up in the ways that God wants us to to live for him and his glory. And so let me ask you today, is your life built on the cornerstone of Christ? When when trials come and when pain comes and trials are sure to come in our life, right? Is your life greatly shaken or because Christ is is your cornerstone, do you still find strength? To make it through the trials. Even though you're blown around and and tossed a bit. Because of the the difficulties that come in your life. Let me me give you a prayer for these times. It's found in Psalm 61 verse 2. Where the psalmist simply prays. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is a great prayer to pray. when, When you're going through difficulties and trials. Because God is our rock. Christ is our cornerstone. It's not surprising that the early church sent, referred to Jesus simply as the stone. This was one of the titles that they ascribed to Christ because he was the foundation, he was what their life was built upon. So so Jesus says the cornerstone shows how that God's kingdom and even our lives should be built on who he is, his person, his work for us. But the stone also is a symbol of judgment. We see this in verse 18. It's intensely strong what Jesus says. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I mean, again, the the religious leaders, they they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, look, you are on the path to destruction. If you fail to build your life upon God, you will one day stand before him and face his judgment. And it says that that the leaders, uh, they understood it so well that they immediately wanted to arrest him and take him out. So the good news then is that for those of us who embrace Christ, who, who love him, who live for him, that we won't face that judgment, but we will have a sure foundation for all our souls and be able to live with God forever. So a life given comprehensively to God will first be built on the cornerstone of Christ. Here's a, a second way to give yourself to God. Glorify God by imitating him in all things. Pick up in verse 19. It says that the the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor." So they asked him, teacher, we know that you uh, speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So once again, the the, the leaders are trying to to trap Jesus. They They were constantly watching his every move. They were prowling around like lions waiting to pounce on Jesus. They were, they were always seeking to lay a snare for him that they might catch him in his words and then say, look, he is not a true teacher. He is against our people and he is even against the Roman government so we can hand him over the authorities to be taken out. AND SO WHAT THEY DO IS THEY BEGIN THEIR WORDS WITH, with FLATTERY, RIGHT? OH, JESUS, YOU'RE, you're SUCH A GREAT TEACHER, and, 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 AND YOU KNOW THE WAYS OF GOD, AND YOU, you, you DON'T SHOW PARTIALITY, YOU'RE, you're SO SINCERE, um, WHY DON'T YOU TEACH US YET AGAIN? AND THEY PUT FORTH THIS QUESTION TO HIM THAT WAS ACTUALLY A no win QUESTION, AGAIN, TRYING TO CORNER JESUS INTO a, a RESPONSE THAT WOULD INCRIMINATE HIM, AND SO THEY SAY, HEY, our taxes. Should, should we give our taxes to Caesar, our tribute to Caesar, or should we reserve it for ourselves? Now, if Jesus would have said yes, give tribute to Caesar, then he would have lost favor with the people because uh, the, the pious Jews did not appreciate the, the Roman taxation, right? So, so if he would have said yes, then he would have been siding with Rome, it would have seemed. And and a Roman coin, what did it bear? It bared the inscription of Caesar. I've thrown a picture up here on the PowerPoint for you to see. See, everything in Rome was meant to pay homage and to point to the supremacy of Caesar. So even on their coins the areas, it, it, it would have shown the, the face of Caesar. And, and under Tiberius' reign, it even said these words in the back of the coin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So everything was meant to pay homage to, to Caesar and to Rome. And so surely Jesus wouldn't endorse this, right? Surely he's not going to say yes But then if he says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, then they're going to say Jesus is an insurrectionist and he's calling people not to be obedient to the government so he deserves to be arrested, tried, and killed. What is Jesus to do? Well, in verse 23 it says that Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is jaw-dropping, heart-penetrating wisdom from Christ. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but render to God the things that are God. Instead of answering their either-or question, Jesus provides a both-and answer. He evades their trap, and in the process, he gives two instructions for us to know how to live in this world. Number one, he says, look, you should fulfill your earthly obligations. Now, I know that most of us don't enjoy paying taxes, just like the, the Jews, and especially to you know, a government that had taken them over. But he said, you know what? They, 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 they make your road. They're providing for you in, in so many ways. And so as, as citizens under their jurisdiction you are called to pay your taxes. So uh, for those of us that would, you know, prefer not to do that, not only would we possibly be in prison for tax evasion, but we would also be breaking the commands of Jesus. So we wouldn't recommend that around here at Redemption Hill, okay? Uh, we would say, hey, submit to the government. That's what Jesus has instructed us to do. Paul and this in Romans 13. So we need to be obedient citizens as we live in the kingdom of man. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He not only says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but then he says, you need to also give to God the things that are God's. So it's one thing to fulfill your earthly obligations, but it's another thing to fulfill your eternal obligations. And when Jesus says, whose inscription and likeness is on the coin... And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to render to God the things that are God, the Jewish crowd would have known exactly what he meant. You see, what Jesus does, as he often does in the gospel, is he raises the stakes. He says, you're talking about coins. You're talking about material possessions, but I'm talking about your life. Genesis 1.27, what does it say? It says, so God created Man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what Jesus says is he says, you, your life is made in the very image of God. You were made to bear the image of God, his likeness, to reflect with your life who God is, how great God is. and to spread his fame by the way that you live your life. You belong to God. God is the one who made you. You're not your own. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, speaking to Christians who have been doubly bought, not only made by God, but redeemed by God. So honor God with your body. So whether you are not yet a Christian and and, and you're kind of just learning about Christianity, the Bible would say you are made in the image of God. And your life belongs to God. You are supposed to, to, to reflect God with your life. For Christians, not only are we made in the image of God, but now we are being remade into the image of Christ. You see, though we have all been made in God's image and we're called to bear His likeness, we know that sadly and tragically we have not bore His image very well, right? So many times we, we don't look like God looks. We, we don't act like God would have us to act. And we don't communicate how awesome and glorious he is with our life. That's why uh, we, he sends Jesus to die on the cross and be raised on the third day so that if we would receive Christ, we can be remade into his likeness. We are born again, made new in our hearts, and now we're constantly being made more like Christ. The image of God is being renewed in us if we are in Christ. This is good news. 2 Corinthians 3, listen to what verses 17 and 18 say. Now the spirit, now the Lord is the spirit, and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Don't miss verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, look, as you behold the glory of God, and you look at God and you take in all of who He is, then by beholding Him, that He will change us and make us more like Himself into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. These verses are awesome verses on what it looks like to be made more and more like Christ. This is the theological term that we we, we talk about at Redemption called sanctification. That's the purpose for us. We want to be made more holy, more and more and more like Christ until one day we are with him and he glorifies us and makes us like himself, free from the power and presence of sin. So here's the simple encouragement, okay? In all things, everything, behold the glory of God and seek to imitate him in whatever it is that you say, do, or think. This is what Ephesians 5.1 1 is talking about, right? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children be imitators of God. This is so helpful to me, right? I want to complicate the Christian life and come up with a thousand and one things to do to really glorify God with my life when God is just saying, look, look at me and be like me. So this is so helpful. I mean, what is my life to be about? It's to be about God. How should I work? I should work like God works. How should I think? I should think like God thinks. What should I do? I should do what God does. How should I parent? I should parent like God parents me. And then we naturally start asking, well, would Jesus listen to that kind of music? Would Jesus endorse this purchase when I go to the mall and hang out with my friends? And someone is saying, wait, Tanner, that was like so intrusive, slowed down a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. God wants all of us. He wants every. Piece of our life and here's the beautiful thing that is so paradoxical to understand but when god intrudes and invades our life we seem to think from the outside that then life is full of restrictions but what happens is he actually sets us free why because that's why we were made We were made to put forth the image of God. We were made to keep his commands. We were made to glorify him. And so as John Piper says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So when we live for the glory of God, when we imitate God in all things, when we behold his glory, then we actually find the deepest enjoyment and delight and satisfaction in life. Just go try it this week go live for yourself and see how that works out for you and then keep God's commands follow him and see how that works out for you imitate God as beloved children God deserves our highest trust our highest obedience he desires our love our praise our very lives so we should glorify God by imitating him in all things and then finally number three give yourself to God By surrendering everything to the Lordship of Christ. Verse 27, another controversy is on the horizon. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, that man should take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the concept of love-right marriage, by the way. It's laid down in the law. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, the the Sadducees, as Luke tells us, were those that did not buy in to the resurrection. And so they are trying to, you know, bring Jesus down by concocting this crazy, ridiculous story uh, that, that plays off the concept of love-right marriage, as we saw. So if a, a brother has a brother who dies and his widow is left childless, then that brother should marry her in order to perpetuate his lineage. So they come up with this ridiculous hypothetical scenario where this happens seven, six different times and she's married seven times. And so they say, well, well, Jesus, I mean, if she was married seven times, then whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Surely this denies the reality of resurrection. And so they they try to to, to trap Jesus again. But Jesus then replies in verse 34, it says, "Uh, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answer, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. So Jesus says they are wrong in supposing that the future age is like the present age. They don't have an ability to comprehend, and by the way, neither do we, the realities of the future life and how distinctly different and amazing and transformative it will be in God's plan. So there is an assumption that whatever happens in this life will necessarily happen in the next life. But Jesus says, you have it wrong. In the future life, people are, are no, neither married nor given in marriage... But they are like the angels, okay, who, who don't marry. And then what I love about Jesus, and this is a good way for us to understand how to interact with other people when they bring arguments to us. You see, the Sadducees, they embraced the Torah, the, the law, the first five books of, of the Bible, okay? So they, they thought that the first five books were authoritative, but that the rest of the Bible and the Old Testament was, was not as authoritative. So what Jesus does is he quotes what they embrace, Exodus chapter 3, the, he says the, the story about the bush, referring to Moses before the burning bush, where, where Mo, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus says, if, if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are already dead, but he's speaking in present tense as though he is their God, that there is an afterlife. There is resurrection. And so even the scribes who were wanting to entrap Jesus have to praise Jesus for his wisdom and knowledge because he's just refuted the Sadducees who are also their opponents on understanding the scriptures. And if we go back to Matthew and Mark, what what is so stinging about Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees is he starts out and he says, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures or the power of God these people who come with this scriptural question don't actually understand the scriptures very well. And as an encouragement to our church, may that not be said of us, right? May it it not be said that, that we don't, know and understand the scriptures. That's why we teach from the Bible every Sunday. That's why we focus on the Bible in our community groups. That's why we want to hold one another accountable to to read the Bible, to, to take in the Bible, to study, to dig, to meditate, to memorize, to know it so that it influences everything about our lives because this is where life is found. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And we can take and read and know what God is like, and know how to imitate him with our life and to bear his image. And so at this point, they see the deep, deep wisdom of Jesus and they, they, they resolve to ask no more questions. And so the conversation is over for the Sadducees and the scribes. But what I love about Jesus is the conversation wasn't over for Jesus. Because then in verse 41, he continues on, but he said to them, they were done, but Jesus is not done. He says, but, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? We're continuing the theological discussion. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord So how is he his son? What Jesus is doing here is getting the religious leaders to buy in on their concept of Messiah. Hey, will the Messiah be a descendant of David? Yes, of course. The the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Well, then um, is is the the Messiah going to sit at the right hand of of God? Yes, he's going to sit at the right hand of God. He will reign over all things. Well, what does that mean then? It means that, that, that the Messiah, the descendant of David, who, who is a son, is also the Lord. That means he is the one who has authority over all things. So to understand the end of chapter 20 is to really go back and to answer the question from last week about the authority of Christ. He doesn't answer the question on authority on the spot, but he answers their question on authority indirectly by, by making sure they understand that the Messiah should be called Lord. In other words, when Jesus speaks, people should listen and live their lives accordingly. What he's doing is calling them to recognize his authority and to, to, for them to understand that he is Lord. My pastor in college used to say, Jesus is, is uh, either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I mean, this is what it means to be Lord, that, that he is supreme over all things. And this is the the life that, that Jesus calls us to live. And so what he's going to do as we finish out our passage this morning is he is going to provide two contrasting pictures of false devotion on the one hand and true devotion on the other hand. It says, In the hearing of all the people, verse 45, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So here Jesus condemns false devotion. He exposes the hypocrisy and the greed of of the religious leaders, the scribes. And he says, look, everyone knows them. They get the nicest seats at all the social gatherings and they can pray the most eloquent prayers and, and they have the nicest clothes and everyone knows who they are. But at the end, what they are doing is really putting on a religious show. That's all it is. It looks really, really good on the outside, but there is no substance there. There is no life there. There is no devotion to God there. There is no bearing the image of God in their lives there. They're really just wanting to put forth their own image to be praised for themselves, not to give God praise. And Jesus says, this is hypocrisy. And those who teach the law don't even keep the law that they teach, therefore they will receive the greater condemnation. As John taught us so well last week, worship is an all-the-time thing. It's a -a seven-day-a-week thing. It's not a kind of come to Sunday and do our thing type of thing, but it's a it's a 24-7 all the time giving our lives in our work, in our homes, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods. Wherever we are, we're worshiping God from hearts that are given to him. So Jesus exposes false devotion, but then he gives an example of true devotion starting in verse 1 of 21. It says, Jesus looked up. Remember, he's still in the temple here. He says, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Jesus says when, when people are going to, to give their offering to God, just like what we do every Sunday, we give back a portion of what God has given to us so that the work of God might continue on among us. This is what they did in the temple. And it says that the rich brought their money bags and, and they placed them in the offering box, right? I mean, everyone can see. It was probably for a lot of them, maybe not all, but, but quite the production, right? They're, they're loading out their coins and you can just hear it cling, 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 cling. And everyone's probably saying, wow, look how much those rich people are giving. Oh, they're so generous to God. Man, I want to be like them because they've given so much. And then this poor widow, who no one cares about doesn't have much to give at all she has two coins the smallest coins that were in circulation at that point it would have been our equivalent of two pennies she takes her two pennies and she places them in the offering box these two pennies represented Everything that she had to live on. She could have said, you know what, hey, I'll give God 50%. That's a lot of, of my, my wealth. I'll give one to God, keep one for myself. But she gives everything, two pennies. And what happens is that Jesus says, this widow has given more than all the rich people. And when he says this, I'm sure they're saying, "Like Jesus, are you seeing what we're seeing? Did you not hear with your ears all of the clinking noise as these rich people unload their pockets and give so much money to God? And Jesus says, the widow gave more because you don't see like God sees God looks at our heart and he knows what's in our heart and the measure of sacrifice that when we give to God, it's not so much about how much we give, but it's about the condition of our hearts and why we give it. So you may not have a lot to give to God, but sometimes the smallest offerings are the greatest sacrifices and the most pleasing to God. So we can all give proportionally, and we can also give no matter how much we have in our our, our, our wallet. We can give sacrificially, give until it hurts. This is what this widow did. But what I love about this widow, what Jesus wants us to understand, is that what happens with her money is really a reflection of what she's willing to give with her life. The, the, the issue here is sacrifice. You see, the widow had surrendered her life to God. And you see, you know what? Man, I don't have much, but what I have, I'm going to give to God. And this is, this is what someone who is truly devoted to God is willing to say. Say, God, you know what? You have my life. Whatever you call me to do, whatever you put before me, if I can serve you in any way, if I can give my life away for the sake of others, I am willing to give it. It's a picture of surrender. This widow had open hands, open arms to God, saying, God, whatever you want from my life, I am willing to give it to you. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Tanner, like I, I get that. And, and when I learned the truth about Jesus, I, I was willing to, to give it all away and to follow him with my life. And, and so you know what? I, I, I I surrender to God, but I I don't surrender to him very well day in and day out. What should I do? Well, What we need to do is hear the words of Christ when he calls us to follow him in the first place. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, surrender is not a one-time activity. It is a daily dying to ourselves every single day that we might not be front and center, that we might not live in our own strength, but that Christ might reign in us and we might be surrendered to him every day so that he can shine through us as we seek to bring him glory. Jesus wants all of us in surrender happens when we surrender to him every single day. In 2 Samuel 24, it's a story of of David and David had, King David was Israel's greatest king. Okay, He's the one that that wrote most of our Psalms and the Bible and so it says that, that, that David took this census and counted the people. He wasn't trusting in God and God's plan, but he went outside of God's commands and he takes this census and then he's exposed before God as is, is breaking his commands, and he's very sorrowful for it. So, so David is a step of repentance. He's instructed to build an altar to sacrifice to God, to show his devotion to God and, and his steps of repentance. And so it says that he was to go to the prophet Gad's uh, house and, and to build an altar there. Uh, there at Ariuna's house, actually. So there was this man named Ariuna. He was supposed to go to his house and build an altar. But the problem for David was this, is that he didn't have any animals to sacrifice. So Ariuna, because he is about to interact with the king, he wants to pay the king homage. And he says, you know what? King David... I have these these animals, these oxen. I will more than gladly give them to you so that you can offer a sacrifice to God. But David didn't receive that as a gift because in verse 24 of chapter, 24 of 2 Samuel, he says this, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me Nothing. David's heart had to be all in. He wanted to express his devotion to God because he understood that to give our life to God, although God's salvation is free for us, that is actually very costly, that, that, that our heart has to be given to God, surrendered to God. So let me ask you this morning how much is your Christianity costing you? Is your life fully surrendered to God? Are you willing to give it all away for Jesus? This is how we live a life that bears the likeness and inscription of God and spreads his fame everywhere. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by your word. And we as we measure our lives up as we as we look into the mirror of your word so often we see that 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 we don't really like what we see that 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 we haven't maybe borne your image in our relationships in our work and in, in our worship through the week like we know that you deserve. And so Father we even just confess that right now and ask that you would you would show us where we failed you, and, and that, that you would receive our confession and, and grant us forgiveness. And Father, we pray that, that you would empower us by your Spirit to, to hear the words of Christ, that we would deny ourselves and that we would uh, die to ourselves every single day, that you might reign in us as, as Lord of everything, and you might receive great praise and, and worship from our lives. So, God, we want to be a church at Redemption Hill where not just a few people get this costly call to follow Christ, but but that all of us answer the the call to follow Jesus and to surrender our lives to Him. Lord, even in these moments, would you lead us to surrender to you? That our lives might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.